Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vaughn. I am a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I covered how there is an electability conundrum surrounding Bernie Sanders. You have Democrats who are running around trying to figure out who in the race is the most electable. And so they're running around trying to figure out who can beat Bernie Sanders, who is the most electable. And in the process, it's really dividing the field. And so I talk about how when you read and hear anecdotal evidence of how Democrats are talking about what's electable, they're inadvertently, in the end, probably choosing one of the least electable persons in the field in Bernie Sanders. That doesn't mean he can't win, but it does mean he has a lot more issues than your average Democrat in the field. The second column I had this week, we talked about how Democrats ran on a jobs-killing platform during the Nevada debates. I covered how they are calling for things like a fracking ban, which would hurt jobs in places like western Pennsylvania, where they seriously need to work on regaining lost ground in the 2016 election. That is the reason that they lost Pennsylvania in 2016, and if they continue to lose voters out in west Pennsylvania and similar regions of the Midwest, they're going to lose again in 2020. And finally, in the newsletter this week, I talked about how there is a divide among unions and how they're split currently on whether or not to vote for someone like Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism. Specifically, the big thing that's dividing all these unions, especially out west right now, is Medicare for all. They do not want to give up the gains that they've gotten via the private negotiations they have with companies. You have some of these unions, specifically the Culinary Union in Nevada, who has built great health care plans. And under Medicare for All, all of that goes out the window. And a lot of these unions don't know why they would exist if they don't have these big health care plans. So cover why there's a divide in the Democratic Party over that and how, ironically, this divide could help Donald Trump to win over union voters. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. It's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it everywhere on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews you guys are sending in help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm and improve the show. And I look forward to hearing from you in the comments and reviews. So with that, we can jump into this week's show. This week, I'm talking about and covering the Nevada primaries and talking through the results there. I'm going to talk a little bit about the debate, which I watched. had a few comments on that in the column that I talked through, too. And then I'm also going to talk through the coronavirus that is going around the world, and it is growing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what some political leaders and what some others who are high up in the establishment or in you know either in the political parties or just in general what they're talking about and what they're thinking about as far as how the coronavirus can impact both politics and just everyday life moving forward in 2020 there are some big questions if china can't get this thing corralled over how far the impacts will reach. So I wanted to talk through some of those, not really scaremongering, but just sort of talk through different possibilities. But we're going to start off today talking about a clip 
that came out from 60 Minutes on CBS from Bernie Sanders. He got his big interview this week on 60 Minutes since he's the clear Democratic frontrunner, and they interviewed him on a wide variety of topics. And one of the things they decided to question him about, I was a little surprised that they decided to do this, but they did. They questioned him about his past support of Fidel Castro. Yes, the Fidel Castro that you're thinking about. The murderous communist who led Cuba, the Cuban Revolution, and wanted the Soviets to fire nukes at the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Fidel Castro. In the past, Bernie Sanders has had plenty of nice things to say about Fidel and the Communist Revolution, and he's not the only communist dictator that Bernie has said pleasant things about. So they ask him about it, and this is what Bernie had to say. Back in the 1980s, Sanders had some positive things to say about the former Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. He educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you want I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. Well, I hope you feel good about literacy programs in Cuba, because that's the bright spot that he sees with Fidel Castro, that when he came in, he educated the people in Cuba. This was, of course, in the 1960s, and by this point, capitalism in America had made education pretty widespread and affordable. Yay, capitalism. But, you know, this is what Bernie sees when he looks at these countries. And and it's worth noting here that When you go out of your way, like Sanders does here, to single out Fidel Castro and to protect part of the communist legacy that he left through things like a literacy program, you also hear him talk about how Cuba had a good health care system. Also a joke. It's just not real. They never had a good health care system. But when you see Bernie come out and single this out as something to protect But then he turns around and looks at a place like Israel, which he has singled out many a times on and calls them bigots for what they do. It sort of shows this sharp contrast of what he's willing to protect. Many in his circle, I would just call flat out anti-Semitic. There's a lot of Bernie Sanders that you can look at and say that he matches a lot of what you would find in the Labor Party and their their anti-Semitic problem that they had in the U.K., Because it's the same types of people. It's not Sanders himself. It's the people he surrounds himself with. Sanders goes around and talks about good things about Fidel Castro. He also has had pleasant things to say about the USSR, the Soviets, and communist China. Because he views these places as simpatico with his own beliefs. So it says something about him and what he views he needs to protect, legacy-wise, when when he's trying to protect Castro, Cuba, the Soviets, and so on. It shows 
his true colors and the things that he thinks are important. So, I, I mean, he, he sort of spoke for himself there. I don't have a lot to add. It is sort of incredible that you would have to have somebody point out to you that a lot of people were thrown in jail, a lot of dissidents, and there's an entire community of Cubans in Florida who all ran away from that government, and when Castro died, they cheered in the streets. And that's what Sanders has to offer them. So, not a great thing if you want to win a state like Florida, obviously. But that's who Bernie is, and that's what he has to offer. That's all I got to say on that. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will dive right into the Nevada caucuses. How about that Nevada debate? It really was something to behold. It was just amazing to sit back and watch Democrats for the first time, really. It's the first time that the entire field has just sat back and torn each other apart. Elizabeth Warren talked about, prior to Nevada, about being this big unity candidate who the entire party could come behind and unite. And she was out there stabbing absolutely every single person in the back. It didn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you thought, what you believed. If you were in the debate, Elizabeth Warren was coming after you. The only person who really escaped her ire was Bernie Sanders. And we can talk a little bit about that at another time. Perhaps she's playing for a vice presidency spot. Perhaps she's trying to play for something else. But Bernie was the really the only one she didn't go after. And the person at the top of her list was Michael Bloomberg. And Frankly, he probably deserved it, given all the press attention that he's gotten. I've noticed that since the debate happened, aside from all his advertising, he's kept his main public image profile. That whole thing has been a little bit lower than he was doing previous to this. So I think Warren managed to maybe take him down a peg or two, at least maybe in the eyes of the media, even though his spending train does go on across all Super Tuesday states. And that's going to matter as we go forward. But apart from the debate, which was incredible, as some Republicans and conservatives said, it was the best debate ever just because you got to watch all these people really go after each other, hammer and tongs. But even with all of that, you probably didn't end up mattering anyway because the Nevada caucuses were already taking early voters by the time the debate took place. In fact, I think they were already in day three or so of early voting by the time that debate took place. So I don't think it's going to really matter in the end. So with that said, overall, big win for Bernie. It is now Bernie Sanders' race to lose. He's the clear front runner, and you're going to see him get the lion's share of the media attention this week because now it is impossible for a single person in the media establishment to deny that Bernie Sanders is the main leader coming out of Nevada. They may have been able to pull other storylines out of Iowa, out of New Hampshire, but at this point, there is no other storyline. It is the fact that Bernie Sanders has the clear lead and the clear path to get the nomination. He's now even money in the 538 model of just the entire primary. They have him at nearly 50% to win an outright majority of delegates by the end of the primary season, and at around 70% odds to get a plurality, which means a very strong number of delegates into the convention. The next best odds after that 
are still no one. If you combine those together, you get about 80 to 85% of all known possibilities. So in reality, we're really getting down here to the moment where Bernie Sanders is getting dangerously close. And I use the word dangerous there specifically because the Democratic establishment is still terrified of him and does not want him to win this nomination. So he is getting dangerously close for their preferences to hitting escape velocity. That means he's going to get enough momentum and get rolling here to where no one else is going to be able to catch him. And the reason he's going to have so much momentum coming out of Nevada is that he won by such a commanding lead. We're still waiting for the final results out of here, but the last I checked just before coming on air was that he had about a 20-point lead on the second-place person, which is Joe Biden. Biden should be coming in second place. That's what everyone's projecting with Pete Buttigieg in third. So it's not just that Bernie won. All the races up until now have been close. This one wasn't close. Bernie Sanders won walking away. He's going to have close to about 40 to 50% of the vote, and Biden's going to have about 20. So he almost lapped him completely there. So that's where Bernie is. He's got the strongest lead. He's undisp- he, This win was undisputed for him. He showed strong wins across nearly all categories. He had a strong showing among Latino voters in Nevada, which is good news for him. He had sunk a lot of resources there because his coalition prior to this has been very, very white. That goes back even to 2016 as well. And now the race really changes for everyone involved because all eyes turn to South Carolina. South Carolina is completely different from all the other states so far. It is a primary, so they'll be voting. And the potential makeup of the South Carolina electorate, primary electorate, will be 60% black. That is what most people think to expect to turn out. And in Nevada, about 10% of the vote there was black, and Biden won that group, which is also why when you're looking at polling right now out of South Carolina, right now... Biden leads that race by around five votes. I expect that to narrow quite considerably as everyone starts jumping ship on some of these other campaigns that have absolutely no hope to go anywhere. So that's what you got to watch is any polling coming out of South Carolina that shows you, one, how black billers are feeling towards Bernie Sanders. If he's able to make some inroads, that's going to end it for everybody involved, because if he can broaden his coalition to include black voters in the primaries, then he's going to be able to pick up delegates in every last single state on Super Tuesday. So... Early entrance polls of Nevada showed that the electric there was about 66% white, 17% Latino, and 10% black. Biden won that small slice of the black vote, and then about 50% of that group there said that they were mostly either moderate or conservative. So if you're leaning and looking at that in South Carolina, that should benefit Joe Biden in South Carolina because he still has pretty strong support among black voters. And if they are more moderate or conservative, he should be able to win them because Bernie Sanders is considered the extreme left wing of the party. And when you're just compared to Bernie in general, anyone to the right of him is going to be considered either moderate or conservative. So South Carolina is the first race where black voters really 
really matter, and you have to underline that several times. Like I said, about 60% of the electric there is expected to come out and be a black voter there, and so whoever wins this race must win their support. It's absolutely required. Or you have to make sure that they are split up between so many other candidates that you're able to consolidate other minorities and other groups in South Carolina in order to win the overall vote. And with Bernie Sanders here, this race is likely to tighten up just because he's going to get all the media attention and he's going to have the clear frontrunner status attached to him officially by the media. They've been ignoring it so far, even though if you've been following what I've been saying, I've told you for a while now that Bernie is the clear front runner, but it's unclear right now if he is expanding his base. He's obviously done that some with Latino voters, or he's just got less white vote with him right now because whites are split among more candidates. And if you do that, it ex- it inflates the same number of minority voters he was getting last time into a larger percentage. There's a little bit of an interesting discussion among election types on which one of those things is happening, but whatever is happening after South Carolina, we're going to know really clear on whether or not he is actually capable of expanding his base. So with that said, Elizabeth Warren, she's done. She had a great debate performance, but it came too late in Nevada. There's just no other way to put that. She's officially done. I've said she's been officially done for a while now, but this really does put a fork in her because she had a great debate performance. There's no doubting that. But with Nevada having so many days of early voting, which they did for the first time, uh, it just it just really killed her her ability to get any momentum off that debate performance because people had already voted. I think as many as three-fourths of the people who would vote normally in the Nevada caucus voted early. So if you're Elizabeth Warren and you had this great debate performance, it didn't matter because people had already cast their votes, which benefited Bernie Sanders. So in her case, she may have won some people on the day of, but with them running it the way that they did and holding this debate, it meant that the debate just was basically nullified. And just... You would think Democrats would have thought this through a little bit more. If you're going to hold a debate in Nevada, you would think you would hold that debate before anyone cast a ballot. But they didn't do that. Why they didn't do that, I'll never know. This entire primary season for Democrats has been one gigantic headache after another, one mistake after another. I think the only thing that's gone off without a hitch so far has been the New Hampshire primaries and like I said it we're still we still don't know the official results out of Nevada because they've only released about 88%. From that we can project what's going to happen at this point. It's not like quite like Iowa where we're still waiting for stuff, but it's still kind of embarrassing for a state to hold caucuses like this and not to have results out by now. I don't know what they did to mess up all their caucuses because I I can't think of another year in which the caucus system has suffered so much by such bad running. But, you know, here we are, and Democrats might be getting rid of caucuses entirely after this. We will see. The other reason that Elizabeth Warren is, and I, I just, I count her out now altogether, is that she's losing in her home state of Massachusetts. In January, Elizabeth Warren was leading everyone in Massachusetts, so just last month, and she had 41% of the vote in polling. 
The last poll I saw was dated February 18th. And you want to take a guess what she had? Because I'm about to tell you. She's in second place now in Massachusetts. And she's got a whopping total of 16%. So she's really fallen hard in her own home state where her own voters are now split among about five or six different candidates trying to figure out who they're going to choose because they know they're not going to vote for her anymore. Now, maybe she gets a bounce after that debate performance. I don't know. But that's going to get nullified again because we have South Carolina coming up. And that's going to dictate what happens on Super Tuesday for any momentum. So the Nevada debate is not going to carry far enough to matter for her when it comes to Super Tuesday. So Elizabeth Warren is officially done. And frankly, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person. Now, she may get brought back if somebody, if Bernie, you know, perhaps wants her as a vice presidential candidate. We may see more of her then. And I'm hoping not, but between Bernie Sanders' clear frontrunner status and his surge heading into South Carolina and Super Tuesday, and Michael Bloomberg dropping billions across all those same states, and there's the strong potentiality here for Joe Biden to actually make a play and actually win a state in South Carolina, there's just no path for her moving forward. Elizabeth Warren has never had any path whatsoever with a single minority group in the Democratic Party. And if you're trying to win some of these states, that really matters. And if you can't do that, you have to consolidate various kinds of white voters. And she hasn't been able to do that. In fact, the only constituency that she won in Nevada that I saw of any one list is that people who get all their news from Twitter. So that explains her candidacy in a nutshell. Everybody on her campaign is on Twitter all the time. They think they're scoring all these big victories by getting all these likes and retweets. And none of it is generating anything in these states. So good job by her. She's going to flame out here before... I mean, I don't know what she's going to do before. She's going to stay in probably through, through Super Tuesday. I don't know why, but that's probably what she's going to end up doing even though this is done. And and also, the other people who are done are Tom Steyer, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar. None of them has a single path moving forward. At this point, they're just dividing the vote further. They do not have a path. Tom, well, we'll go to Pete Buttigieg first. He can say that he did well in one Iowa and did well in New Hampshire, but it was clear, even from those states, that he had no support in any with any minority group in the nation. It didn't matter what kind of minority group that you listed. He was going to poll at 0%. And the other funny thing that he was starting to do is he was just basically ripping off or riffing on Obama-type lines and copying Obama's speech patterns. And some of his tweets that he was posting were basically ripped off of an Obama speech straight up. So he was trying to project himself as sort of this white Obama figure, and everyone saw right through it. And I, I don't know what he's going to do now. People are joking now. They're wondering how fast he's going to be leaving Indiana because he has absolutely no political future there. He'll never win a statewide race there. So he's probably going to end up moving to New York and getting on one of these cable news shows. So feel free to enjoy either your CNN or your MSNBC talk show with Pete Buttigieg in the near future coming to your television screen. Um, the other person who I would say has a real big red flag here is Tom Sire. Now, last week on the on this show, I, I snuck Tom Sire in as my, my sneaky second or third place person. I thought he would finish higher than he did. He's not even going to hit single digits. I mean, uh, double digits from what I can tell. He may only finish with around 9%, which is, 
which is really telling because he, like Bloomberg, is another billionaire, a multi-billionaire, and he sunk a lot of money into various kinds of liberal causes, and he thought he could use that same money to spin up support for himself and some of these other states, and it just flat out hasn't happened. It hasn't happened at all. His money and his polling, that is good polling, did not translate at all into any kind of votes. And if you're Michael Bloomberg and you're looking at this and you're looking at Tom Steyer and seeing that his money didn't actually produce in votes, yeah, that's going to raise some red flags for you. Steyer's biggest, the biggest plus that he had was that he was making inroads with black and Latino voters. And that doesn't appear to be translating either. He didn't score well with either group. And so he is right now in third place, roughly, in South Carolina, if you look at the polls. And I'm wondering whether or not that holds or not. Because the only reason he was polling that high was because he was taking voters from Joe Biden straight up. So black voters are moving away from Joe Biden and going to Tom Steyer. I'm curious if that continues to happen now with Tom performing as poorly as he did in this race. So I don't know if he'll be able to do that, but what I'm suspecting will happen is that you'll see him deflate more and more voters will move back to Joe Biden because Biden can legitimately say that he came in second place in an important race against Bernie Sanders, even though he got beat by 20 points, and that this is his chance to show up and win. Whether or not that actually happens, I don't know, but he's got a four to five point lead right now across various polls in South Carolina, and he's depending on black voters to save his entire campaign and then also do the same thing in Super Tuesday states where they carry him across all the southern states and potentially help him get momentum in California and Texas. I don't know if that'll happen or not, but that's the plan. So my prediction, because by the next time I can, because the South Carolina primary is this next Saturday, so I don't have good polling yet because polling is just now beginning to move towards South Carolina, but based on some of these older polling, I'm guessing that Joe Biden actually comes out and wins this, but I'm guessing he's going to win it on a close result. I think Steyer is going to, in fact, deflate here, and he's going to deflate enough to help power Joe Biden into first place which will show that Bernie Sanders has some potential weaknesses with various minority groups, specifically black voters. And if that's the case, then it's going to make Super Tuesday that much more contentious because you're going to have Michael Bloomberg coming in and swooping in, trying to take those same type of voters with all of his money. So I'm thinking it's going to be Biden, Bernie, and Steyer in that order, but there's going to be a pretty big gap between second and third place. With Buttigieg, Warren, and Klobuchar making up fourth through sixth place, right now in my prediction I have Buttigieg in fourth place, Warren in fifth, and Amy Klobuchar in sixth place. I really think you could toss all three of those guys in a in a hat and jumble them up, toss them back out, and you know I, I, they could be in any place, and I would believe it. But I don't think they're going to be anywhere anywhere close to either second or third place. There's going to be a gap in this race because those three in particular have problems with black voters. I see Biden and Steyer as linked, so if one of them overperforms, it's going to hurt the other one. 
And if they both hit even, then Bernie Sanders is going to win this state. So those are the two to watch, the Biden-Steyer relationship in these polls and how they interplay with one another. So once again, my predictions are Joe Biden wins South Carolina, Bernie Sanders comes in second in a close second place, and Tom Steyer wins third. And if that happens, it's going to make things interesting as we head towards the convention because it will finally give the establishment wing of the party something to grasp onto to oppose Bernie Sanders and try to convince everyone in the party to get behind Joe Biden and try to beat Bernie Sanders. So there's still some chances here you could get a contested convention, but they're they're shrinking because Bernie Sanders is dangerously close to escape velocity here. He's getting enough momentum to get away from all the other people in the race. So there's my predictions. That's what to watch. And when we come back from the break, we'll jump on to the coronavirus story and talk through it. All right, we're going to talk about the coronavirus here and how it's spreading and just how different governments and different officials are talking about it. I am recording this at 10 o'clock central on a Sunday. So I was pulling up on my phone the latest numbers that an account that I follow had them up. And right now there are 79,000 infections of people infected with the coronavirus. There have been about 2,500 deaths. About 23,500 people, 23,500 have recovered from being infected and there's another 11,500 that are in serious or critical condition. So those are the headline numbers on the coronavirus at this time. It's still well below what you'd expect from something like the flu. But the problem is that we have solutions to treat and cure the flu more effectively than we know what to do with this right now. The symptoms are flu-like from what I've read. And so that's what makes people think that places like the United States healthcare system can handle it better. And I do agree with that. There are right now around 80 clinical trials open on how to treat and cure. I expect more of those to open up. I know there have been a couple of pharmaceutical companies that I've read about here recently that are working on cures. So I think you will find more than likely the cure come from more than likely the United States. I expect us to be able to pull that out just primarily because we have more resources to pour behind this than a place like China does. And even if China comes up with a solution to this disease, I wouldn't expect any U.S. healthcare company to take that seriously. They would test it on their own as I would want them to do. So uh, once again, I, you know, I expect U.S. healthcare, we should be able to handle this pretty easily. And we have so far... Uh, the even though you're seeing the spread of quarantine in other countries and other places, we still have a better healthcare system, and also more importantly, we have a better sanitation system. People over here are just far more sanitary. We have access to things to clean things and to get rid of germs. And when you're looking at some of the situations where this virus is spreading you're seeing it spread in places with bad sanitation conditions. I was looking at some video going through of one of the the 10-day hospitals that they set up, saying heavy quotation marks, China claims that they can build a hospital in 10 days. 
And the video of them walking through this thing was just apocalyptic. There were people, there were buckets catching water in the floor. There were tiles and, and, and walls coming apart. This was not a hospital. It was a triage tent that you would expect in a war zone. So that's what China has throwing at this. They do not have what we have. That doesn't mean we can't be in, impacted by it. But the effects here would look a lot different just because of the systems that we have in place and, frankly, because people here are more spread out than they are in China. So the big thing here is to watch what happens with ports of entry and places like airports. So the United States has already severely restricted air travel between China and the United States. And there's also more quarantine efforts happening on any ships coming in and out of our ports of entry. So those right now are the big areas of contamination. The U.S. is restricting travel from them. And, you know, we've already restricted travel with China, with different airlines, those airlines happily complied. I have a feeling that you'll start to see other countries included in that list. Right now, there's no big concern of doing that. But when you're watching this contamination grow in places like South Korea and Italy, you could see them get added in the near future. I know Italy in particular added different uh, parts of their cities. I forget which part of the country, but it was around 50,000 people are now quarantined there. And South Korea is probably going to end up doing that, doing the same thing, although their healthcare system is much better too. So something that's worth watching. And that's just talking about the general spread of the disease. Stepping back and looking at it from a more of a 30,000 foot view and seeing how this interacts with other things... The big thing here is still China's economy. People want to talk about how you have quarantines in all these new countries and in Europe, but the big story is still China because the bulk of the infections, the bulk of the deaths, and everything are happening there. And the way this is turning around and looking, this could have them on the brink of a recession here soon because this happened to them. The outbreak started happening in earnest at the first of the year around Christmas. People were on Christmas break, so they were home for their for the holidays and for the Chinese New Year. And when they were told not to come back, they were already home, so they, people just took it as a long holiday. Well, now that's continued. So now you're into month two for some of these people who haven't been back to work. Some of these companies that haven't been allowed to open back up because of the quarantines in these cities. And now things are getting really tight. Factories and businesses are facing the fact that because they haven't been able to open up and sell, make, or produce anything, they're also not making any money. And a lot of them, according to reports out of Bloomberg News, only have enough cash on hand to last at most a month. So about a third of them only have enough cash on hand to last a month. And from there, only a few more have enough to last more than two or three months or even up to six months. So most of them are, are 
already eating into their reserves on what they can do without financial help. And Bloomberg was saying that China was being stressed to open up bank lending so that these businesses can get loans just so they can meet things like basic labor costs and salary. Because if since these companies aren't making any income right now, they can't even do things like pay back loans that they have in the past and also pay salary to people because people are just staying home. If you're on a salary, you can stay home and perhaps still get paid, but your company's not making any money. If you're an hourly employee, you're not making any money at all, and neither is your company. You're all shut down. So the quarantines across all these cities are putting China on this brink of disaster economically there. This is the big thing for them. China is a command economy in in communist terms. They dictate absolutely everything that happens. So what they're trying to do, just to offset and, and keep their own countrywide production up, is get other cities which don't have the same infection problems to double, triple their output, and so that the country itself still has all these resources, even if some of these individual cities continue to suffer. But that's a lot of hard work and a lot of overtime for a lot of these employees because they're trying to make up for entire cities that are no longer open. So as an example of what happens, just using some American companies' names, I was listening to the Wall Street Journal. They have a podcast talking about, about this, just called The Journal. It's pretty good. But they were interviewing different companies that have businesses over there. So a place like Walmart. Walmart is currently open and running fine because they are stores that can that carry everything that people need for day-to-day living. And so the government hasn't shut them down. On the flip side, you have companies like Ford, GM, Apple, and Starbucks who all have stores over there. But because they're not considered a a day-to-day good that you need, an essential item, they're all shut down. So all these companies that do business over there, if they have all these stores, all of a sudden their stores are doing absolutely nothing. They're just sitting there in the dark making no sales, and so that impacts their bottom line across the board. So that's just one way of using companies that you know. China also has a lot of mom-and-pop businesses which are smaller and depend on a lot more of these these loans to keep going, and they are at risk of going under. So if China can't control this, there's going to be a ripple effect. We've moved, in the U.S., we've moved some of our own production outside of China over the last four years because of the trade war. So a lot of companies that were hit hard by all the tariffs and everything that were happening, they had started to move some of their production out of China to get around some of those tariffs. So some of the U.S. industry is a little bit more sheltered from this than they were just four years ago. But even with that said, if China goes into a recession, it will impact the United States and will impact our economy moving forward. Just because we're so interlinked and there's so much trade between the two that if one of us gets sick and has a cold, the other is going to notice it and feel it. And that's just due to the sheer size of both of our economies. With that, there's other things that are in play here too. When you go back to sort of the pandemic examination of this, So the big thing that's happening this year is the 2020 Olympics, and they are being held in Tokyo this year. And they had there was a story that came out that they had to cancel training for various volunteers for the Tokyo Olympics because of fears of the virus spreading. 
So there was even a, a mayoral candidate in London who said that London was willing to host the games again if Tokyo wasn't able to. I don't know if that's going to happen, but this is one of the real things that people are beginning to talk about at these higher levels. Can some of these cities near these near these big areas of pandemics happening, will they be able to host their events? Will the virus clear up by then enough to be able to host the Olympic Games safely? No one really knows right now, but they should be making contingency plans for it. In the United States, you also have all the big sporting events here. Right now, there's no big outbreaks in any U.S. cities, but the NFL and Major League Baseball both send teams abroad. Major League Baseball tends to send teams to various Asian countries. The NFL has gone to Mexico and London so far. I haven't seen where they're going this year, but you have these big international games. And, you know, if if they can't go over there because there's some scare with the virus, they're going to have to make contingency plans for that as well. These kind of contingency plans have to happen now because it's impacting various things. You know, you see the stories in the news of airports or cruise ships that are impacted by this. Well, bigger events are going to start getting impacted by this. Things like, you know, the economies and these different types of sporting events. You're seeing the same thing with large conferences. I've seen some of them be canceled and you're going to see probably musicians who tour a lot in these different countries also talking about having to make changes in their plans because of the virus spreading. So these are just some of the the ways in which this virus is impacting various just various points along both supply chains and the economy and just impacting how people travel and interact with the international community. And then finally the political impacts here are both with the U.S. elections and in Europe in general. Like I said, a Chinese recession could impact us and also send us, if not into a recession, it could impact uh, the amount of growth that we're able to have in a given year. Tariffs alone are estimated to have taken off about a half a point of overall GDP, between a half a point and a full point. A full-blown recession in China would do that and probably more. So if you're averaging around 2 to 3% like we are, it could severely impact how fast the economy is growing and make people feel like the economy is slowing down and they need to start you know, tightening their belt now. So that could severely impact the U.S. economy. And if it does that, it would in turn impact elections because people often vote on how they're feeling in an election. And if you have a situation like this, where it's Donald Trump who's running on his record on the economy versus Bernie Sanders, and you're looking at an economic downturn, people in that type of situation are far more likely to give socialism a second chance if things are not going as well as Trump is saying with the economy. So that is one way in which this could impact the elections. The other way this could impact things is over in Europe. I was reading a story that said that Europe was having to handle something which they were all calling the worst problem that they've had to deal with since 2015, which was when the Syrian migrant crisis was occurring. And that's when you had the war in Syria, which was ongoing, and you had Obama's red line moment happen, and he didn't do anything. And you had all these migrants flow out of Syria by the millions, and they fled across. They fled into countries across Europe, 
And because you had the European Union that had a lot of these lax immigration laws, once you were able to get in, you could travel freely anywhere you largely wanted. And that's what happened. And that inflamed a lot of these right-wing groups who wanted to get out of the European Union to control their own borders because they were seeing these large flows of people come from outside and flood into their countries. Now, I don't really care what you think about one, that one way or the other. It did impact the elections. It probably directly impacted how successful Brexit happened. Because if you actually have a situation where Barack Obama enforces that red line and doesn't and you have Assad go down and people stay in Syria, you don't have this mass exodus out of there, which inflames right-wing sentiment across Europe and helps lead to something like Brexit. That is how, that's just a domino thing of how things went down with that decision and how that had large, just not even ripple effects, there were full-blown waves of not enforcing a red line with Assad. Everyone ran out. Well, this is a, a similar deal because you still have the free travel zone in the EU where people can go wherever they want, except for now the United Kingdom, who has left the EU. But if you have people, like in Italy here, who are going to start dealing with this pandemic and quarantines, you do not want these people then turning around and traveling to these other countries because it's going to allow the virus to spread more easily. And so if you see that start happening you're going to see this same thing happen again where people are going to say, we don't want this EU to determine our borders. We want to be able to shut this down if people are sick to prevent them from coming across into our countries. And I'll say right now, that is a very different argument to make as opposed to the pure immigration argument that was being made before where people just didn't want immigrants coming to their countries for one reason or another. They wanted to control that. If you're arguing on the basis of a pandemic, that is a far more compelling argument to make for a lot of voters than just you don't want more people showing up on your doorstep. People are going to vote for, let's keep the sick people out, no matter what their race is. They'll vote for that every time. They may not vote for the immigration storyline that happened last time. So that is another way in which this virus could impact not just elections, but how people view their governments and view, view the European Union moving forward. So Italy is the first real big quarantine scare, and so that's going to make the continent and the entire European continent more scared, and it's likely you're going to see more anti-European Union sentiment rise up as people see this happening in their neighbor's yards, in this case in other countries, and want to prevent that from coming into their country. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the cognitive information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. You can look for my next columns on Monday and Fridays at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up for that, and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews. They help us out. And I hope you tune in again. But until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.